Arthur Millick joins us today. He is the executive director of the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life. He has edited a volume of essays by 19 contributors, many of whom have been published in First Things. Arthur joined us for a podcast, I think, two years ago. The title of the new volume is Up From Conservatism, Revitalizing the Right After a Generation of Decay. It's a weighty volume covering many areas of culture and society, so our discussion will be a little selective, uh, but I recommend it for those right-leaning people who become increasingly disappointed with, let's just say, the traditional mouthpieces. Uh, That said, let's begin. Welcome, Arthur. Thank you very much, Mark. It's an honor to be here. You know, speaking actually of traditional mouthpieces, your, your title borrows, I imagine, from William F. Buckley, his Up From Liberalism book, right? Which, which may have been a borrowing from Booker T. Washington's, what, 1901, 1902 uh, memoir, Up From Slavery. Uh, why, why is conservatism something that has become oppressive to many people, uh, I'm, I include myself, in, in 2023? Well, I would say that it has a long history of losing. Uh, over and over again. And it has a special kind of way of losing because it never admits its errors. It never really changes trajectory unless forced. And even when forced, it not only hesitates, it tries to go along the lines of what it has been doing for, let's say, since the end of the Cold War. I mean, I I would put it this way. Uh, Listeners should ask themselves, what is, name one, Just to yourself, you don't need to shout it, but just name one major trajectory-changing victory that the right is responsible for since the end of the Cold War. We can all name many losses. We can all name many such victories on the left. The country continues to churn further left in absolutely unexpected ways. And yet the right is not responsible for any major fundamental trajectory-shifting victories. And so this edited volume is an attempt, issue by issue, to look at what we've done wrong, what the right has done wrong, what the consequences of that are, and what the new revitalized, rethought position ought to be on the security state, on the administrative state, on sex and gender, on civil rights, on immigration, on all of the issues that we are unclear about, that we may be ashamed of, uh, but that need to be elaborated as the circumstances in the country get worse and worse for the right. You say that this ossified right has consistently failed for one, one, one reason being its inability to grasp the full nature of the left. What have they misconstrued or overlooked about their adversaries? Uh, Several things. Uh, One is that the nature of the left is to be imperious. Uh, It is not a live and let live ideology. It is not an ideology that once they achieve the handful of enumerated goals, they cease and say, okay, we've reached some semblance of a common good. Things are okay for us. We'd like to compromise and move on. It's the opposite of that. It's the, we will capture every national institution. We will not only do that, we will then chase you 
far into the obscure woods in which you're hiding and ensure that your children agree with us. And if the consequences of that are that your children despise you, that your children become basically regime spies inside of your own home, that they become reeducated, well, all the better. That's the only way to impart change. And so this is one of the things Scott Yenner and I, my colleague uh, and frequent collaborator, write about um, on education, that the right has been hoping, praying, that even though we've lost the schools, even though, by the way, the right pays taxes on those schools, uh, we can find some release lever and do charter schoolings, schooling. And when charter schools go left, we can finally do homeschooling. And we can find a place in the woods to hide where the left will not touch us. Uh, but the problem is that that never works. Uh, and I don't think it's going to work here. And I don't mean this, of course, uh, in any regard as an insult to homeschoolers. It's not at all that. I've met many remarkably talented kids that have gone through that, and I think it's great, but it's a temporary fix rather than what we should internalize in ourselves, which is a spirit of reconquest, a spirit that something has been taken from us and that it should be reclaimed. And schools are just one example of that. Arthur, I think I have to disagree with you on your contention about the imperiousness of the left, because when we were told before the Supreme Court uh, Obergefell decision in 2015 that when we get same-sex marriage, all the sexual identities will be settled. And they're, they're, it's all done. The, 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 the reform has been accomplished. And we haven't seen any sexual identity issues come up since then, correct? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the right, and the irony is that the right parts of it anyways, still actually believe that. Namely that, yes, they won on uh, same-sex marriage. Yes, they may win on transgenderism, but that'll be it. It. Because after all, what could come next after that? And if we just compromise, and the right, by the way, is already prepared to compromise. And the compromise goes in the following way. Uh, you can do whatever you want as an adult, but just don't harm children. The left says, no, we're going to take everything. And the right says, okay, just please leave our children alone. And I don't think it's ever going to stop at that. Uh, I think that the left has no signs of abating. If anything, they're doubling down. And I suspect in that standoff, the right is the one that is going to yield. I, I should say that I'm drawing some of my questions out of your introduction to, to the volume. And we'll get then, you also have a contribution with Scott Yenner uh, in the as one of the, one of the essays. Now, you believe that, you say in your introduction, that we really no longer have a constitutional government in America. Well, what is the evidence for this termination? Right. Well... In a sense, we do, and in a sense, we don't. Uh, we do in the obvious ways that we still have property rights, we still have contracts, uh, we still have the, the appearance of constitutional government. We still have a presidency, we still have a Congress. Those things have not just gone away. But when you look at the details of how these things operate, my view is that we are without doubt in a transitional period. It doesn't, it's not clear in which direction things will go, but it's clear that it's a transitional period. Namely, in a way we have a presidency. We have a president that we, uh, we're told we vote on. At the same time, that president is not capable, at least if he's uh, a conservative, of uh, 
implementing any of the policies that he was elected to implement because there is a vast apparatus that's part nefarious, part just going on, on habit, part just obstinate like any bureaucracy, but regardless of the motives, it will hinder, it will stimmy, it will get rid of agendas, it will blow them up, it will leak, it will harass, it will humiliate. It can stop the implementation of a legitimately elected president's policies. That's both the administrative state and the intel state, which is growing more and more uh, and becoming more and more vehement. Uh, it's becoming clear that it's almost completely unaccountable. Uh, and uh, the right seems to be more or less okay with that. There are some good glimmers of hope, but to do something about it would require much more than I think they're willing uh, than they're willing to do. The same thing can 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 be said of Congress. Uh, again, we have what appears to be a Congress. After all, you do vote for the your elected officials. But when you look at the details, not only do they this is an old comment. I mean that many people have said. Not only do they give away their authority to that same state that stymies, harasses, undermines the executive, but more importantly. When you look a little bit further uh, under the hood, they are engaged in funding all of the institutions that are growing more and more hostile, hateful to the right. So just as one example, Mark, you and I know this one, we've talked about it so many times. Your listeners know that all of, almost all of the, the, the higher ed institutions in the country have gone left, and yet, it's the right in Congress that continues to fund them on autopilot relentlessly. When you look a little bit even more underneath the hood, you see billions of dollars every year that is uh, uh, given to the leftist NGO archipelago, which supports that activist class that is meant to erase red America. And Congress continues to fund it over and over again. So, again, in a way, we have the appearance of constitutional government. Uh, and in a way, it's one-sided. It only goes in one direction. And regrettably, there are fewer and fewer levers of power that are obviously available to stop this trajectory. Yeah. And yet, nonetheless, you point out that for some reason... Even among a lot of establishment conservatives, the, the left has superior, quote, moral power, unquote, in American life. Now, when we look at the record of those zones where we get total, absolute leftist control, inner cities, the public school system, uh, Hollywood, horrible results, how can they retain that moral power? Yes, uh, it's a, you know, this one is a tough nut to crack. Um, let me give you an example uh, of, of how this operates. So suppose we have, suppose you're giving a talk uh, in front of, I don't know, 100 college kids. You are giving that talk and in the next room, somebody on the left is giving the same talk. Both talks are on sexuality and what you on the right and in the next room on the left want think the truth about sexuality is. I assure you that the people on the left that are giving that same talk can say almost 100% of what they think. 
They will say it openly, with confidence, without any hesitation. And then if anybody disputes it, they will do a slap down. Go to the next room, the room where the person on the right is trying to elaborate their position. They're full of hesitation. They don't really know what they stand for. They give half measures, which can be easily beaten down. Part of this, the point of this example is part of this is a matter of self-confidence. They think that they are on the cusp of a full historic transformation hmm. of a formerly evil civilization into something better. And when you think about the psychology of the right, what exactly do they stand for? And I, I actually want to be fair on this. Uh, they kind of think that, well, we don't want to hurt kids. We want them to be happy. They never feel that they are saving a civilization. They never feel the kind of self-confidence that comes with that. And so that is one of the core problems on the right, that they always live morally within the sandbox that the left paints for them and allows them to play in. One fundamental error that may speak to the defensiveness that conservatives feel in areas, say, of, of sexuality or cultural in general is that the right has identified a nation with its economy, with the market that, that it has, the market rules. How has this been a losing conception? Yeah, sometime in the last more than just the last generation, uh, the, the, there was a kind of tacit pact, which nobody announced, which nobody shook hands on in some dark room, but it just ended up this way and everybody was satisfied for it with it for a little while. And that was farm out the moral high ground to the left in the country. They're responsible for culture. They're responsible for opinion making. They're responsible for what is permissible to think and speak. And on the right, leave us the economic thinking. Now, the economic thinking that was left for the right was basically globalization. Now, in a way, we have to be fair that in a way, a lot of the country, at least people with 401ks, really did benefit from globalization. At the same time, what it meant was morally that effectively the country was for sale. That it doesn't matter how you make money. It doesn't matter the potential moral harms from those methods. It's all okay because the core of the country that the right is responsible for is really just ensuring that prosperity keeps growing and growing and growing, even if it grows in unsustainable and preposterous ways. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. I mean, you know, the legalization of drugs, the, 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 the allowing of all sorts of private vices the video games, the bad diets, the uh, engrossing oneself into the narrowest kind of life. I don't mean to beat up on these people. You know, I'm not interested in that. I, I just mean to e explain that the right cheered all of this on. And it cheered on also in doing so, this class in Washington that views themselves as um, I am going to become wealthy from my connections. I am, uh, dare I say, I look at my present position, if it's in the intel state, if it's in the military, as something from which I'm going to make a lot of money. And we have this, you know, astonishing thing 
that general officers, instead of being honored in their retirement, go off to make obscene amounts of money trading on the connections that they have. It's an astonishing thing. And this was all permitted. This moral sandbox was permitted because the right thought that efficiency and raising of prosperity was the only standard that exists at the cost of the nation. On the issue of conservative neglect of, of culture and the arts, I'll, I'll just cite Roger Kimball's entry in, in the volume uh, is, is worth a read on precisely this score. Uh, back to these, this idea of the loser mentality uh, among the right, sort of a willingness to accept a subordinate position, giving over so much of the country to, to the left, uh, you know, just keep us a little space, and, and, and then also the market issues. Question, Arthur, how did defeatists get to be in leadership positions on the right? Where, 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 were, the, where were the fighters? What happened to them? Yeah, the fighters, you can't fight if the moral high ground is ruled by the left. And so you don't really fight. You're taught very early in your political career that here is what is permissible and here is what not. What is permissible almost always benefits the left. And so here are the sets of arguments that you on the right are permitted to use and step and never step out of them. So I'll give you just one example. I mean, on immigration, it's an astonishing thing. Our border operates like a third world country. Namely, anybody can get in no matter what. And the right was singing the tune of that for a very long time and basically bowing down, making arguments on behalf is the more polite way of putting it, making arguments on behalf of our plutocratic class who needed cheap labor no matter what. And this is kind of, this points to one of these spectacular and um, unpardonable errors of the, of the right in the past generation, namely that they gave cover to the plutocratic class for the last generation, especially on immigration. And at the end of the day, now, the Fortune 500s, for whom the right gave cover, have gone all to the left. And nobody on the right even tried to stop it. You staked your power in the country by defending that class. They betrayed you, and you're like, oh, oh, shock, oh shocks. The left never does that. The left knows how to rule its constituents, it knows how to benefit them. And when they step out of line, it stops them from doing so uh, for the most part, not always, but for the most part. Yeah. And the right does not, because it doesn't have this self-confidence, it does not have to know how to rule its factions. All of this makes, in your words, the new right a, quote, counter-revolutionary and restorative. Force. Now, your essay in the volume, as I said, co-written with Scott Yenner, applies this goal to education, where you say we must destroy and reconquer. Okay, how does the destruction commence? Yes. Well, uh, my view is that it partly has to do with funding. Uh, not only, but partly. Uh, th there's, there's this remarkable thing that is taking place in the country that uh, we all kind of know, but nobody wants to put sharply, which is this, that red money, conservative money is being taken from conservative pockets to fund universities 
that despise those red people and that take their children and re-educate them and teach them to hate their parents and hate the nation. It's one of the most remarkable games of three-card Monty I've ever seen. And it's done on a mass, multi-billion dollar scale. And so the first thing that needs to be done is, especially in the states where we have real power, to start leveraging that money for real reforms. And when those real reforms uh, are, are either sidetracked or stymied, pull the money. It's okay. In, in 1970, something like 20% of the college age population went to college. Today it's 40. It's okay if we go back to uh, 20%. It's fine. So long as there are excellent trade, trade school options that are provided for real training, which will, by the way, make a big dent in our uh, uh, constant need for illegal workers. There are ways to do these things. Just give you one concrete example. The University of Florida receives something like $300 million a year from the state of Florida every year. Well, that money can be tapered off. I'll give you a private school example also. Yale University receives $500 million a year every year for, for research. Some of that research, maybe even much of that research is very good. It's scientific research. At the same time, what it allows universities like Yale to do is effectively hide the radicalness behind a science laboratory. And there is absolutely no reason that good cutting edge science has to be done at universities. That's a relatively new thing. You, you know, I think it was in Wisconsin where the legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, I, I think this is the case. They looked at the University of Wisconsin and they saw all the DEI stuff. They cut the budget by exactly how much the DEI stuff costs. Is that a very simple one, one, one simple step that every single red state legislature ought to do? It's a simple, but uh, it's only a first step. And this is part of the problem that the right always has. They want these temporary victories and never want to really cut into the bone. Because even if you get rid of DEI programs, the whole university can largely be on the left. And that should be unacceptable to the right. That is the, if, 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 if anything, I would like the right to revive this view that especially in the states where I think the future lies and where I think the most hope uh, uh, lies, um, this view that these are our spaces, these spaces are for the right and they should be controlled by the right, just like the left controls their own spaces, they should be controlled by the right, they should be reformed by the right, uh, made into uh, our image the image of what we want without compromise. Uh, and it's reviving that sense within ourselves that this belongs to me and it will not be taken from me uh, is, is what I propose, how, we, how I propose we approach education uh, in the States. If we go down to K-12, you say school choice programs, initiatives, legislation, an inadequate solution. Why is that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. It's another one of these silver bullet solutions that the right always loves to bet on. You know, we've got, we've really, we're really going to turn this country wrong around and here's the one thing that we're going to do. And it never, and it never works that way. Um, <clears throat> the main problem is, look, if you, if you implement school choice tomorrow in DC, nothing's going to change. All of the schools are still going to be on the left. 
Moreover, a lot of these charter school companies have openly declared that they are now on the left. And so you can actually, at the end of the day, have your favorite school choice program finally implemented and all of the charter schools be on the left. Uh, it's a very astonishing thing. And it's, and it's, again, one of these modes by which the right thinks. We have this one policy solution. We're going to get rid of DEI offices or we're going to implement school choice. We're going to get that and we're going to move on. And it never works that way because we never go far enough. All right. All right so you and Scott Yenner uh, go into the governor's office and you're going to tell him uh, the first step to take to make real deep change. What's that going to be? What are you going to say to him? Right. So number one is I do not want red state universities to become little red state ghettos. That can't be our thinking. It's got to be the opposite. It's that we are going to create universities in red states that are national and world competitive universities. So number one is there are a lot of very high flight scientists that are at Harvard, at Yale, at MIT, at Caltech, that should be attracted to the University of Florida. That the governor should do a, a public search and a public announcement and say, all of you scientists who are sick of the wokeness, who are sick of the bureaucracy, come here. We will give you a 30% pay increase. We will pay to transfer your laboratories. We will give you graduate students and graduate programs. And the University of Florida is going to be the best in the sciences, the best public university in America in 10 years. So that's got to be one. Number two is you have to do deep cuts into the departments that exist. It's not okay that universities have nonsense departments. There are clever ways that one can go about basically refashioning, reshuttling that faculty and then getting rid of them. And the key is that you then have to fill up those departments or some you'd get rid of, but fill up the ones that remain with actual competent conservative or even just neutral faculty. I mean, I don't care if a chemist is, you know, conservative or liberal, that, that need not matter. And then you really have to very carefully select from the ranks that the right has produced. And there are not many that the right has produced in order to refashion that university into something that is uh, good for the country, something that's actually useful for the country and not seeking to undermine it. There are a whole host of other strategies that can be employed, but that is a starting point. Uh, here's a question. Now, now, Arthur, we agree that uh, a lot of the, the left control of things, when you lay it out there for the full population, they're not always all that popular. Is there enough popular support to persuade, well, we'll start with red state governors, do it. This will help your career. It doesn't matter if the newspapers, columnists uh, scream. It doesn't matter if the activist groups accuse you um, of this and that or the media because your poll numbers are going to go up. Is, is, is that the case? And, and, and can you persuade them that's the case? Right. Well, look, uh, I think that the, the DeSantis re-election, I mean, he won by... Uh, a 20-point swing, that's huge. After winning four years before by, you know, I forgot what it was, but 0.4 of yeah. a percent. Yeah. 
So voters do like these things. And his whole theme of his governorship has been the reconquest of institutions. So I think that voters do reward these kinds of things. I think that some work needs to be done to exposing uh, how bad things are because, you know, you root for Alabama football or UF football and you don't look under the hood. But more importantly, I think that the argument needs to be made to the public uh, that you are paying for these things. They are teaching young people to despise the country, despise their origins, despise the Constitution. What kind of people are you really forming? We should be in possession of these things and creating something that's useful for the country. So I think that the making that moral argument is one of the first steps and it has to be repeated over and over again. Uh, and after that, I think that governors will be given a great deal of freedom. One of the problems uh, that the right has found itself in is that for the last, I don't know, generation or so, the only way that they would approach higher ed is through free speech. Now, look, free speech is obviously important. The problem is that when you make that your policy, it's a dead end. So here's an example of that. If you have a university, a small college, a big university, where 95% of the faculty and students and administration are on the left, what good does it do in terms of the function of the university for there to be one conservative kid that can loudly bang a drum on the quad? It changes nothing. But it's been a cope. It's been a way to say that, yes, implicitly, a way to say, yes, we are very marginalized. We are in the minority here. But just let us speak, please. Let us speak and let us have the chance to bring Ben Shapiro onto campus and we'll be satisfied. But that misunderstands. It's a grave misunderstanding of what a university actually ought to be. The book is Up From Conservatism, Revitalizing the Right After a Generation of Decay. Many, many entries in the book on, on many different themes. Uh, Arthur Millick has the introduction. He's got uh, co-written an essay with Scott Yenner on the education issue. But I, I urge this uh, particularly for those, for those readers who realize it's not 1985 anymore. Arthur Millick, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much.